Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos, videos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hell yeah. What's up? How's it going? It's okay. It's a bit of a sad week for us in the Beatles community. I, I think, know. Yeah, this week we found out that Lizzie Bravo passed away. I'm sure most people in the Beatles community know who she is, but if you didn't, she was a very bright star in our community. She was one of the first non-Beatles folks who were ever on a Beatles album. She was one of the original Apple Scruffs. And she had tons of stories. She had personal relationships with all the Beatles. There is a great photograph of her with John that we posted to our Instagram a couple of days ago. She was really like just so humble about it too. I was always amazed that she was such a sweetheart and she was just so blindsided by all the attention she got. But she was really somebody who was there on the ground uh, in the 60s. And like Erica said, she was one of the backing vocalists on Across the Universe, which is so cool. I, I don't know. I always dreamed we'd have her on the podcast one day. I know. She's such a perfect person to talk to about fan culture and so many things that we love to focus on. We wanted to mention her today, but, you know, fortunately, Sarah Schmidt of Meet the Beatles for Real, who's wonderful and who needs her own episode to talk about her many, many projects. She is going to join us in a couple of weeks to give Lizzie a proper tribute. We'll definitely talk more about her adventures and her life in a couple weeks. And I can't think of anybody better than Sarah to come on to talk about that. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Sarah is like a Beatles fan expert. <laughs> you know, yeah. she, especially with the Apple Scruffs and of course the fan clubs, you know, Sarah is like an encyclopedia. Yeah. So Lizzie will be missed and uh, yes, we'll be 100%. back with that in a few weeks. But today we're talking about something also very grim. Last month marked 20 years since 9-11, and while we're not going to talk about the day itself, we didn't want to let the anniversary pass without talking about the anniversary of another 9-11 milestone, which was how Paul McCartney channeled that horrible event into some pretty interesting musical moments. Paul had a reason to be involved in 9-11. He didn't just insert himself. He was actually kind of there. He was at JFK Airport on the tarmac, sitting on an airplane, waiting to take off while this was happening. Mm. He could see it. Yeah, that was always the craziest thing to me. He's done a bunch of interviews where he's talked about it, but he said, you know, out of the window on the right-hand side of the plane, he could see the Twin Towers. And he said, first there was a plume of smoke, and then there was a second. And he thought it was an optical illusion. Like, he thought it was maybe like a little fire, nothing, no big deal. But then the steward came over and said to him, look, something serious has happened in New York. We've got to get you out of here. And they took him to a hotel in Long Island. And he just like watched the news like everybody else. And he, his first thought was, what, what can I do? What can I do to help this? You know, he was actually smart about it. You know, he didn't go down to ground zero or try to insert himself in a way that he didn't. He, you know, wanted to write a song. He wanted to get people's spirits up. But that's a very Paul thing to do, I think. Of course. 
Paul gave this awesome interview to Pitchfork in 2007, and he explained that in the wake of 9-11, the American spirit was in danger of being squashed. He said, I know I knew a lot of New Yorkers, for instance. I knew a lot of people who would write to me and say, I'm never going to go on an airplane again. So he decided to do this concert from New York City, which we're going to talk about. And when they announced it, he got a message from some woman in Boston who said, I'm coming to the concert. I got to get on an airplane. And, you know, you really helped me. So he did this, you know, because he wanted to help heal the people of New York and also the victims' families and the survivors. And he got together with a lot of other Brits, which we'll get to. Um, and, you know, they all said, look, you know, you will overcome this. And, you know, they wanted to try to help basically is, is the crux of the concert from New York City. Yeah, and actually, Paul wasn't originally part of the concert for New York City. And this is where the history of this thing gets a little bit icky. But he had his own musical event that he was planning. And friend of the family, Harvey Weinstein, was planning a bigger event and asked his buddy Paul if he would be part of his and combine the two events. And then as soon as Paul McCartney got involved, it kind of became a Paul McCartney event. Oh, my God. As we'll find out as we talk about the concert for New York City, there's a lot of people involved in these things who now are very, uh, shall we say, not looked upon favorably. Yeah, some things did not age well. No, exactly. Anyway, so let's get into it. So the concert for New York took place on October 20th. It was telecast on VH1. I remember. Did you watch it live? I remember watching it live. I think I watched some of it. I mean, that was back in the day when it was still appointment television and you had to watch it at the time or else you weren't going to see it. Yeah, I very, very vividly remember watching it. And uh, it was a five and a half hour concert at Madison Square Garden, of course. And Paul said in a statement prior to it that he witnessed the tremendous heroism of the city, including the bravery of the firefighters. And of course, he has an affinity for firefighters because his father was a volunteer fireman in Liverpool during World War II. They ended up raising over $35 million for the Robin Hood Foundation, which I haven't heard that name in years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah, right? That blew my mind. There's so much about this. It's like a time warp. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, damn, I forgot about the Robin Hood Foundation. Um, But that went directly to the victims' families. Um, And actually, it's still around. I looked it up. And they do a lot of great work uh, with people suffering with poverty in New York and, and elsewhere. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad they're still around. It was really the who's who of British musicians of the 60s. No pun intended. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Including (laughs) the who, David Bowie, Elton John, Eric Clapton, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. And then, of course, our American friends like Billy Joel, Bon Jovi, Jay-Z, Destiny's Child. Wow, they looked good in some of those pictures. (laughs) Early Destiny's Child. My God. Backstreet Boys, yeah. James Taylor, Melissa Etheridge, Fiber Fighting, Goo Goo Dolls, John Mellencamp with Kid Rock. Ugh. Plus Adam Sandler as Opera Man. Do you remember Opera Man? Oh my God. Okay. I need to pause here because <laughs> holy shit. Okay. Talk about a time capsule, guys. Like Five for Fighting. I forgot they even existed. And now I can't get their damn song out of my head. What, what is like the hero song uh-huh, or whatever? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you know, that's the only. That's the only reason they got to perform is because they had that damn hero song. 
And so they got to perform with Paul McCartney in Madison Square Garden for the biggest concert of the decade. Right? Oh, my God. And John Mellencamp did one of my favorite songs from around that time, which was Peace for World with NDRE, although he did it with Kid Rock for some fucking reason. So that was a thing. Yikes. And, uh, of course, there were many celebrities there who made cameos. This is this is only a short list. There were many, many more. Howard Stern, Billy Crystal, Mike Myers, Bill Clinton, Jerry Seinfeld, Harrison Ford, Michael J. Fox, Woody Allen, uh-oh, mm. Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Kevin Smith, and Rudy Giuliani before he became a whole horse's ass. <laughs> Back when he was America's mayor. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I remember that. Oh, my God. Now he could not have fallen further from grace. Yeah. And there were athletes who, uh, frankly, I don't know who they are and uh, don't care about. So, but they were there. Good That's out of the scope of this podcast, I think. Yes. We don't do the sports ball here. That's all right, though. So, lots of celebration. Two people did get booed. Susan Sarandon for plugging Mark Green for NYC mayor. Of course, Giuliani was the man. And Richard Gere for a nonviolent stance that he took at the time, because obviously people were very, very interested in getting back Osama bin Laden with violence. And kicking, kicking some ass. Kicking and kissing. The kicking and the kissing. Good uh, segue. Mm. Yeah, my most vivid memory, and I remember this, like, it was yesterday, like stand, I think I was standing in front of my TV and this firefighter who I found out his name is Mike Moran, an FDNY firefighter. His brother was killed on 9-11 and I will never forget when he gets up to the mic and he goes, in the spirit of the Irish people, Osama bin Laden, you can kiss my royal Irish ass. And I'm pretty sure he like slapped his ass. I'm not going to lie. It still kind of gives me chills, like the passion and the way he said that. I will never, ever forget that. Like, I think about it actually on, like, a regular basis. It's very strange. <laughs> you can kiss my royal Irish ass. I'm not even Irish, but all right. it works. Like on St. Patrick's Day, everybody's Irish. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. So Paul, who ended up being the center of this event, despite not being involved in the beginning, he closed the show. He His set was a very interesting set. I'm down. Right? Lonely Road, From a Lover to a Friend, both recent songs at the time, Yesterday, Freedom, Let It Be, and just for good measure, Freedom One More Time. I can't imagine the crowd was real excited about Lonely Road and From a Lover to a Friend, like, especially since it's at the end of the night, I'm sure a lot of people in there were totally drunk. I would have been personally, and I'd be like, what the hell is this? Hey, Jude. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I, I look at this. I'm like, Paul, read the room. Is this really the place you want to, you know, debut like your new single? Is it a concert for 9-11? Like people who died in this terrorist attack? Like, you can wait. <laughs> you can wait. He went on tour the next year. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. This is not the place to do this. And how the fuck do you say, oh, I'm going to start this with I'm down? I know. Like, and then Lonely Road? Nobody fucking knows that song. I know. The Lonely Road. Like... Uh, weird flex weird flex paul <laughs> yeah. it's like fucking weird anyway but i want to talk about freedom i know Talking you do about freedom there's there's the title for the episode <laughs> hey our work's already done um because i don't know i i have a lot to say about freedom and i know you do too mm-hmm. um but okay so let's go to 2001 god it seems so long ago now 
So by June 2001, he had already completed recording for what would be his newest album, Driving Rain. From a Lover to a Friend was going to be the first single, and its release was set for October. But in the aftermath of 9-11, Paul announced that the proceeds from that single would be donated to aid the families of the New York City firefighters. So the single hit the, fr- the radio the first week of October. It didn't come out to the record-buying public till October 29th, nine days after the concert from New York City. So I'm sure him performing it was his little thing of like his little nudge towards the record stores, or in my case, Best Buy. Like, go buy my single. <laughs> However, after the attacks, Paul obviously wrote a new song called Freedom. And he told Pitchfork in 2007, I was sort of stranded in America for a couple of weeks while the whole thing unfolded. A lot of people wouldn't move. A lot of people were just too scared to do anything. So freedom arose out of that. It was to try and help that, to try and unscare people, to try and remind people, hey, this is my right man. Don't mess with me. And I could totally hear him say that in his yep. Paul voice. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Maybe with a little fist up. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just, I read that with my fist up. <laughs> <laughs> like his little punch in the air that he does. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. He also likened it to We Shall Overcome, which, oh, my God, Paul, no. <sighs> I've got That's... something to say about that later. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably agree with you with what you're going to say about that. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll get to that. Oh, my God. And then he said this totally cringy thing that I have to bring up. He said, it's like, hey, I can't do it, my Paul voice, but you all can hear him say this. Hey, I've got freedom. I'm an immigrant coming to America. Give me your huddled masses. Nope. And that's what it means to me (laughs) is don't mess with my rights, buddy. Little punch in the air because I'm now free. I used to live in an oppressive regime. I'm from Sierra Leone, but now I'm an American. Don't try to take that away from me. No, 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 no. This is like very dated. You guys, it was a different time. The same way we watched Friends and we're like, ah, that wouldn't fly now. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, so much. And like, also, I'm sure those of you guys who are old enough to remember the aftermath of 9-11, it's like, anything was pretty much flying back then like you could talk shit about pretty much anyone from any other country and get away with it because we were so like butthurt about what had happened to us which looking back now looks pretty fucked up because it really should not have given us carte blanche to say all the crap that was said after 9-11 that started a whole (laughs) avalanche of terrifying stuff that we won't get into here but yikes yeah my god um anyway so so freedom go back to the to the song itself he again played it twice at the concert for New York and it got a great response. You know, everybody's singing along. If you can find the clip on YouTube of him performing it, because the words are not that complex, let's say it's literally like the same line over and over. Uh, so in the light of that, Paul canceled his return to London after the concert. And he instead went recorded a studio version of the song. It's really, it's a mashup of the studio version, his vocals and the um, live version with the crowd clapping, the stomping. And also, for good measure, he just chucked in Eric Clapton on lead guitar, which makes sense because Clapton was at the concert for New York. Yeah. Now, noted anti-vaxxer, Eric Clapton. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my God. Read up on this. It's awful. Dude, he also lives in Ohio now. Does Shout he? out to my Ohioans. Huh. I grew up there. He does. His, he married somebody from Ohio. That is That's not I heard, anyway. where I would think his story went. But hey, cool. <laughs> This is where Clapton ended up. I know. I would never have thought that. But yeah, I uh, 
weird. I hope he's enjoying my homeland. Anyway, so uh, Freedom hit the U.S. Airways. They kind of rushed it out to the radio not long after the concert. And, um, like, everything was very patriotic at that time. I It's so crazy, Erica. I don't know if you felt like this researching this episode, but it was so bizarre to look back on this time in history. I remember having a thought when I was, how old was I? I was like 14, 14 15, whatever, when 9-11 happened. And I remember having a thought immediately after it that it's like, well, I guess I got to trust President Bush. He knows what's good for us. I swear to God I had that thought. You know, oh. a lot of people did that night when everybody was sitting around their various living rooms watching his speech where he was yeah. trying to rally the nation, which, of course, the president has to do that, but he kind of did it with a sledgehammer, so. He fuckered up, but, you know, my and my sentiments didn't last very long, but I do vividly remember having that thought. So, you know, everybody was all about the Stars and Stripes for a while after the attacks. So after the concert for New York... Of course, the original single from Oliver to a Friend was already on its way to the shelves. It was going to be out and about very shortly if it wasn't already, depending on where you were. So the original single was recalled. So anybody who's got that now, a collector's item. Mm. And uh, a new single was rushed out with Freedom added as the B-side. And no matter which version of the single you got, proceeds from both went to uh, the Robin Hood, Robin Hood Foundation. But sadly, the single didn't do very well on the charts. There's apparently all this demand for it, but nobody wanted to buy it because it only topped at number 97 on Billboard's Hot 100. That's odd. I wonder where the disconnect was. Because Paul was so desperate to, he stayed in New York, he recorded it in a couple of weeks, you know, it was really a big push to get it out, he put it on the album, and then it just kind of, maybe some of the initial fervor around the concert sort of died down by the time it was actually released. I mean, mm. that or, like, it just got lost in the shuffle because I can't imagine, like, recalling that many singles and rushing more out. I mean, who knows? As another example, Freedom was also tacked on to the end of Driving Rain, which came out on November 13th. I bought it that day at Best Buy. Hey. Um, so once it was announced that Freedom was going to be on that album, retail orders went up exponentially, according to Capital and uh, Powers to Be. I read somewhere that the initial order was 500K, which is a lot. I mean, yeah. for now numbers, it's a lot. Working in the music industry, you don't see those numbers anymore, really. But despite the order numbers, it only the album itself only hit 26 on Billboard's Top 200. And it sold just over 66,000 units its first week of release, which is like not good for <laughs> that many orders. Who knows what it was? I don't know. I have a soft spot for that album. So I think people who didn't buy it are dumb. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, but so, so freedom. Okay. Time marches on. Right. But not long after freedom sort of made a grand debut, people started seeing it as militaristic, which I thought was crazy um, because of the line, I will fight for the right. And they thought it was a call to arms. And I'm like, dude, have you heard any other song in history? Like, this is the most inoffensive. Like, it's two, literally two lines, and it's Paul McCartney. I mean, there were so many other songs at that, even at that time, that were crazier than that. There's kind of a militaristic beat on the back of it. Maybe that contributed to people feeling it was militaristic. It didn't retain that reputation. 
We didn't hear it chanted at the January 6th insurrection, I don't think. Oh, Christ. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would be so awful. <laughs> Freedom makes its big comeback. Oh, my God. That would be so bad. Well, part of the issue, too, I think, was George Bush. He co-opted Freedom. He sort of made that his, like, poster child for getting support during the ensuing Afghanistan invasion and all that stuff. And so everybody was kind of, like, sick of freedom as a concept. I think Freedom Fries really pushed it over the edge. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, my first Paul concert was April of 2002 in Cleveland. And I remember him doing Freedom. And when he did, he unfurled, like, this gigantic banner that was at the concert for New York. And I think, you know, a lot of people signed it. I don't, I'm not sure if it was survivors and victims' families and the performers. But it was just, like, this big like Statue of Liberty banner. I think it may also have had the victims' names on it. It's all a bit fuzzy for me because um, it was a long time ago. But I definitely remember just people going crazy for it because it was still, you know, in that post 9-11 fervor where it's like we felt so helpless and here's a song that's like, okay, it makes me feel empowered. Right, and everywhere was almost an expectation. I mean, I think that's when sports, when baseball games started adding God Bless America or is it football game? I know that like sports started adding one more patriotic song and it still happens to this mm -hmm. day. So it was kind of expected wherever you went that there was some kind of patriotic sentiment going on. There was a lot oh, of totally. either you're with us or you're against us. So I think people really tried to make sure everyone knew you were with them. So even though Paul uh, performed it early on in his Driving USA tour in 2002, he did drop it towards the end of the year. Um, in fact, the last place he ever played it was in Mexico City on November 5th of 2002. And the whole reason that it got hijacked by this militaristic sort of standpoint that people sort of misconstrued and Bush using the idea, as Paul says, rather a lot. <laughs> <laughs> But he said it was great on that tour, you know, immediately post 9-11. It was great to sing it for the American people. It was great for us. It was very healing. It was very, quote unquote, stand up and be counted. Yeah, I can see that. I can also see him trying as hard as he can to inch away from anything that had to do with George W. Bush. I don't know if you remember when he when President Obama honored him at the White House. He made some crack about like, it's so nice that we now have a president here who actually knows what the library is. He wasn't. Oh, shit. He had something to say oh in the White God, House, I didn't and it was know a that. dig at George W. Bush, so he was not happy. That is a sick burn, Paul. It was. Snaps it was. for that. I remember there was a lot of backlash, like, on message boards and stuff from people who felt that that was completely out of line, unpatriotic, liberal bullshit. Oh, like, please. That was a huge um, attack from the right on Paul. They did not like that. I enjoyed it. <laughs> That's awesome. Good job, Paul. This episode of BC the Beatles is sponsored by Pictures2Digital.com. As Beatles fans, we're so lucky that all that original footage was saved and digitized so we can see masterpieces like the new Let It Be. But what about your personal memories? If you have piles of photos, videotapes, or even slides documenting your family history, make sure they're protected for generations by digitizing them at Pictures2Digital.com. Pictures to Digital can digitize nearly any type of media, catalog it for you, and deliver your memories via flash drive or the cloud service of your choice. And now, 
Pictures to Digital has a special offer for our listeners. Use the code BEATLES15 at checkout to get 15% off any order. Book now to receive your digital memories in time for the holidays. That's code BEATLES15 for 15% off. Save space, reduce clutter, and keep your precious memories accessible and protected for life. Pictures to Digital. That's pictures, the number two, digital.com for memories that last a lifetime. The concert for New York City was on TV for it was five hours long. They aired it all day. There wasn't a full concert release. I think there was a two-CD set of highlights from the concert. You can find some of the things on YouTube. But it was never really out there in the same way that maybe Live Aid or something like that was out there. And so Paul's contribution, along with the song Freedom, you know, it might have faded back from the public eye, except 10 years later, he gave us something that let us remember it. It was a film called The Love We Make, and it was, it premiered on September 11th, 2011, so the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. It was simultaneously released in some theaters and in Showtime. I remember going to the movies to see it. I was so excited. It was a weird little film because it popped up 10 years later. It was suddenly this thing about 9-11. I remember it being unclear in the beginning, like when was this shot? What is it talking about? Is it now looking back? Is it then contemporary? Where did he get all the footage? Like all that stuff. It turned out that he did record a lot of footage at the time, possibly to make a documentary, but it kind of went by the wayside, never happened. And it was directed by Albert Maisels, who's part of the Maisels brothers. The Maisels brothers directed the Rolling Stones Gimme Shelter documentary of their 1969 tour, so it was um, still in the music documentary space here. The film was shot in 2001, right up to the run-up of the concert, and maybe a day or two after I don't know if there was any impetus to any reason other than the 10-year anniversary to release it. Paul basically said it seemed like a good opportunity. <laughs> so I said, is the footage still around? Could it be made into a film? Albert Maisel said, yes, it would. So I said, come on, let's do it then. I'm sure his fist was up when he said, come on, let's do it come then. Come on. Too. I just <laughs> I just saw that in my head. Come right? on, let's do it then. <laughs> yes. So it's an interesting film. It's not actually that easy to find right now, but you can find it. It was all shot in black and white, other than some interviews from a few other news outlets during the time that they spliced into it. It was all black and white. You know, more than a 9-11 documentary in any way, it was more to me like A Day in the Life of Paul McCartney. It was kind of like a bookend to A Hard Day's Night in a way, because it's this black mm -hmm. and white footage. The cameras are following Paul around rehearsals to interview and transit around New York City. You know, you see him walking in New York City, signing autographs. You see him talking about his love of New York. You see him even talking about the Beatles' first visit to New York and the Ed Sullivan show. And then that was spliced in with a lot of rehearsals for the concert. It was almost all for the tracks that he played at the concert. So like we said, I'm Down, Freedom, Yesterday, Lonely Road from a Lover to a Friend. Real uh, motivating set list there. I don't know. The set list. For, okay, for the guy who is always criticized for always playing the same Beatles songs at concerts, this was his set list for like this major, major concert that's supposed to be uplifting. I don't know. It's just very strange. 
Yeah, he makes some strange decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, magical mystery tour, Paul, really. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm bitter, but I could stand to not see him play that anymore. Um, just saying. Agreed. <laughs> this probably was the first live footage of Paul performing with Abe Laboreal Jr. and Rusty Anderson. They joined him for this concert that was their first gig together. Uh, Paul had told Clapton that while they had recorded Driving Rain together, they only actually played once together before the concert. Well, they, you know, were his band on uh, Driving Rain, but they didn't really know each other. And Driving Rain was recorded pretty quickly. It was recorded over five weeks intermittently between February and June of 2001. So they didn't really have a lot of time to bond. So I'm sure at this point they were still kind of stranger-y. Yeah, it really looks like they're kind of getting to know each other. You can see them all singing the harmonies to I'm Down, like actually learning it. So it's really cute to sort of see this band start coming together. Brian Ray didn't, wasn't Aww. there yet. He wouldn't join them until a few months later when Paul played Freedom at the Super Bowl. And then Wicks rejoined from the Linda days, and then they had the band that they have now. They look very young. They like do. on the, the footage from Concert for New York, like Abe is like a little cherub back there on them drums. I know, he's so cute. One thing that really struck me while watching the film was the feeling of grief. And it wasn't even that it was grief for 9-11, though that was there, especially in the concert footage. But it was just like Paul has a very heavy sadness on him, even though he's trying very hard to be jovial and, you know, interact with his fans and with the people in the concert. It just you can feel that Linda was gone. And that he was not over it yet. Even, you know, obviously he wouldn't be over it yet. But you can feel that he was still grieving. Even though he was engaged to Heather at this point, you could just feel that there was the weight of the world on him. Somebody had asked him about a Beatles reunion, and he said it would never happen because he would look to the left and John would be missing. And, you know, at the time he was still referencing the three of them, but this was 2001, and George passed away six weeks later. But, of course, there were some brighter spots you know, is filled with Paul's interactions with some of his famous friends. One of my favorite stories, which I hadn't heard before, was Paul was talking to James Taylor backstage. And he was saying, hey, remember when I wanted to call your first album James Taylor and Son? Because I saw like some business called James Taylor and Son. I wanted you to sit in the window in the storefront for the album cover. <laughs> oh my God. And, like you could tell James Taylor was like, yeah, even now I'm not, I don't want to do it. <laughs> That's so funny. James yeah. is like, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Yep, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and Stella was there, <laughs> and they, Zach Starkey was on the drums for The Who. So it was kind of fun because yeah. you saw this little time capsule of not only Paul's life then, but just all of these people in Paul's circle that, you know, we kind of know when you see them very casually and happily interacting together. Aww. But one person who wasn't accounted for was Heather Mills. Oh, shocking. They were engaged at the time. She was at the concert. You can find many photos of her there. But she was 100% completely edited out of the footage. I don't know how they had so much footage of him alone during those days, but she was just gone. And it's interesting. because I I believe it. The Driving Rain era was also the Heather era, but... When this was being edited, Paul was just about to marry Nancy Chevelle and obviously had gone through a really horrible divorce a couple of years after this was filmed. So, yeah, no no Heather, no Heather. Uh, There's also a fairly random sort of 
chance encounter, I guess, with Barbara Walters when he was doing another interview, who just happens to be Nancy's cousin. So I thought that was kind of cute. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so badass. I love Barbara Walters. She just turned like 92 or something. Fucking love her. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, if you got, if you guys want to see a documentary with Heather Mills and it, it's real awkward, watch the Driving Driving USA documentary, which is something that if they re-released it, I'm sure they would edit the shit out of it. But yeah, there's some real awkward moments with Paul and Heather in that thing. Gotta mention too that this is during Paul's very short hair period, which I think was also a Heather oh, yeah. Heather thing. Yes, and the no shoes. I don't think he was barefoot in Madison Square Garden, which was probably more a health thing than anything else. Maybe it's better that she wasn't there because there were certainly more than enough other things that just didn't age well in this film. Um, <laughs> like, as we mentioned, Harvey Weinstein persuaded Paul to join this concert. At least Paul was kind of making fun of Harvey and his obnoxiousness, but there was also this moment when Paul was talking to Bill Clinton and they were talking about a, oh, Harvey family friend. I'm like, oh my God, oh my Yikes. God, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, then there was this, this part where he was on the Howard Stern show and you know that's never a good thing, but there was this really awkward moment where Stern's co-host asked Paul if he had had sex with a black woman ever. And they kept it in the film. And then the other two times he interacted with Stern, Paul kept bringing it up, how pissed he was that he had asked him that on the radio. Like, so we had to hear about the incident like three separate times in the film. So not okay. And not to mention, I got to be reminded of the fact that Howard Stern wore an assless jumpsuit at the concert. <laughs> assless jumpsuit. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. So another interesting part was I feel like you kind of got an insight into Paul's thinking about the song Freedom because he was trying to sell everybody he encountered on this song. I don't think they wanted it to be the closing number. And so he's describing how he was trying to sell Mick Jagger on it. And he wanted to close it, but the, the group wanted to let it be. And he was telling, like, telling Eric Clapton, I feel like I'm fucking auditioning for Mick. And then Mick's reaction was like, well, I don't know, Paul. And then Pete Townsend told him he was brave to workshop a number in front of 100 million people. Oh, my God. For Pete Townsend, you know, that's like (laughs) definitely a fucking roast because Pete is such an acerbic old man. You're so brave, Paul. Bless your heart. Right? (laughs) That's a heart moment for sure. He's telling all this to Clapton. He's standing there. Looking at like, Paul. I don't want to be, I don't want to get into this. He just looked at, he's looking at Paul the whole time. He's Paul's like, yeah, and there's this beat. Ooh, ooh, and just Clapton's looking at him like, oh my God, I am so not impressed. You see Clapton just die inside. Yeah. And even Paul was like telling him it's difficult selling it to people because if I was hearing this sell, I'd be a little unsure. Well, Paul, you just said everything, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> But in the end, he won <laughs> out. He got his way. They ended the show with freedom. They even did it twice. And the final, the final moments of the film are actually, you know, they're really nice. There's some highlights of the actual concert, like Paul's performance, like Bowie performing Simon and Garfunkel's America, which I don't mm. think he ever performed again. Um, but it was really, really great. Um, of course, Mike Moran, the firefighter, lots of shots of the audience just being moved, uh, photos of fallen 9-11 firefighters, policemen, who, you know, 
people brought them on stage and like you have like Jim Carrey saying now this is what a hero looks like and everybody cheering. I think it really did give people a lot of comfort during this just horrible time. It honored heroes, it raised a lot of money. And I think the film itself, like to me, I really liked it. I thought it was kind of a lost treasure because it, it's like a day in the life of Paul behind the scenes mm -hmm. at a time when we don't really know much about Paul because I feel like this time in his career has kind of been forgotten. Yeah, and I think part of that's purposeful on Paul's part too because of the whole Heather connection and how, I mean, Driving Rain, like you said, is the Heather album. So it makes sense that Paul would just kind of want to bury, you know, this period of his career and his life. That's true. And so this, this film is actually nice because you don't see Heather. So you're not getting any of the strife or the awkwardness that might come from watching that. Instead, yeah. you get the awkwardness that comes from Paul and Bill Clinton talking about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, that's, that's awkward, certainly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And him trying to sell everybody on freedom, mm -hmm. which also, like... That's stop trying to make fetch happen, Paul. Yeah, you could kind of tell that he wasn't totally into it himself. Like he did it, but uh, like I don't feel like he had to sell people on Hey Jude. No, that's why he should have done Hey Jude instead of like I'm down or something. I know. Anyway, we didn't make the set list. <laughs> Strange times. But that brings us to the song Freedom. Treasure or trash? Treasure or trash? Wow. <laughs> really? You're going to like black and white it that much? <sighs> well, I mean, okay. I'm here to argue, I guess, treasure for it. Although, I, you know, I thought a lot about it this week as we were preparing this episode. And I, I have a journal. I don't know if I've told you this or not. I have a journal from that time. Um, and no. I literally took up a whole page like writing the lyrics really big to freedom. I'll have to find, I have it here in LA. I'll have to find it. I'll oh post it. Oh my God. You have to. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like what the hell? I was just, but I think my nostalgia for the song just comes from that time and how it felt to hear it then. And also like I'm a sucker for a pop song and a catchy one. And that was kind of fit the bill. Like I loved like the stomp clap you know, mm -hmm. backbeat of it. I don't know. I thought Paul's voice sounded really good. And I still think it sounds awesome on it. Even listening to it live at the concert for New York City, like his voice, it, I'm reminded of how good his voice was mm -hmm. in 2002. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was just sort of like being very young at that time and having this song by like one of my favorite artists. And that was when I just started getting the Beatles and learning about who all these people were who are at the show and that's all wrapped up into my feelings about freedom so to look at it objectively and say is it a, is it trash or treasure i guess like you could go either way on it why don't you tell me what you think erica okay i will <laughs> okay so before i start you know, we you know it, if you hate the song, uh, you hate America. I know. It did a lot of good at the time. People wanted it. We wanted to yell. We wanted to fight for our right to live in freedom. And we got to yell along with Paul. I mean, the song was kind of made for yelling loud and getting those feelings out. You know, certainly of its time, it raised a lot of money. But it's just, it's not a good song. I think it's like a perfect storm of some of Paul's 
worst qualities as a songwriter all wrapped up in one. Lyrically, it's, it's a big, big old sledgehammer. Freedom rhymes with freedom. He invokes God <laughs> in a way that's just uncharacteristic of Paul. I mean, I'm not saying that's good or bad in any way, but it's just, it makes you go like, that's not, that doesn't, that's not how Paul usually engages with religion. That's weird. So it felt like platitudes to me because I know so much of Paul's music. And then, of course, looking at it now, this kind of blunt patriotism has unfortunately become associated with terrible things like white supremacy. So, you know, it's hard to listen to something like that 20 years later. The melody is not much better than the words. It's one in a long line of songs that I think Paul wrote specifically as sing-alongs. It's just another stream of Paul's songwriting that I just don't really get on board with. Like, remember, hey, everybody out there from New. Like, that song was written specifically to sing in concert and evoke a certain feeling in a live show. And, you know, Paul in, in The Love We Make It actually said, really, this is for now. This isn't for later. You know, this is for the moment. Yeah. But they, they lack the artistry that is Paul McCartney, which kind of makes it hard to listen. I mean, there's not even a middle eight. It's just very repetitive, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that also thematically it shares some of the same qualities with his other protest songs, like Looking for Changes, How Many People, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. And, you know, going back to when Paul said that he wrote it sort of like We Shall Overcome, I can, I can see that when I listen to this song, because what he was trying to do was make something that was very simple to sing, simple to remember with a sort of with a sentiment that was general enough that people could get behind it at this moment. And, you know, that lots of different people could get behind it at this moment. And you know, maybe there's some genius or at least some craftsmanship in the fact that he could set out to write a song with that intention. And it does meet those goals. I mean, it does do all of that. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I'm glad, you know, he did it. It was for its time. But that's not what I want to hear from Paul. His lyrical genius is in his sense of metaphor, you know? Like, in lyrics, he isn't even sure what they mean. Like, the inspirational quality of the movement you need is on your shoulder is much higher than I will fight for the right to live in freedom, you know? I just, yeah. I, I feel like he does write songs for the ages, but not when he's trying really hard to make it fit a moment. It's more like the moments fit the songs. And that's how they're classic and they, they are timeless. And this one just doesn't do that. You know, I, I do believe that he wrote this in good faith. He saw the tragedy. But coming from Paul McCartney, the song to me is just, just not up to par. It just feels lazy and, you know, not knowing the full context around it. Maybe it even sounds a little self-serving. You write this quick and dirty song. But, you know, at least it went to charity. So I will say that in the pantheon of Paul McCartney songs, this, to me, is really at the bottom of the barrel. Well, first of all, Erica, clap, clap, because that was beautifully stated. Um, and I, I agree with a lot of your points. And I think, you know, I read a quote that was sort of like, you know, uh, I think it was from like a higher up at Capitol and they were like, Oh, that's Paul's genius. You know, he goes away and he writes this great song and it's like, it's not a great song. It really is not. Um, but I think you said it and he said it where it's for now, not for later. And I think it did serve its purpose. So in that way, 
it was a great song. And by making it something that everybody could sing, sing at the concert for New York City, you see, you know, the firefighters, the policemen, the families, like all singing along with it instantly because it's simple. And in that way, I guess it is like we shall overcome, I think. If I have a problem with anything about Paul saying that, it's sort of putting it in the same realm as that iconic, you know, demonstration song. It's definitely not not up there, Paul. Not up there. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated because I am I have a hard time divorcing my memories of that time from that song. And I think that's what kind of, you know, binds these warm fuzzies to it for me. Mm-hmm. But I would be curious. And if, if any of our younger listeners are out there who were not, you know, alive when 9-11 happened, like, I want to know how you feel when you hear freedom, because it's hard for me, again, to be unbiased about it. And Erica, you said everything, Every I agree with everything you said, 100%, from a technical, from a Paul fan standpoint, it's all correct. But I would be curious to see how somebody who wasn't alive then interprets this weird little song. Yeah, I would love to hear that too. And you know what? I, I agree with a lot of what, with the things that you said too. The success of the song and the, the quality of the song is in the emotions that are attached to the song. And if you did live through 9-11, there are a lot of emotions. So, you know, I can, I can see how it would have a special place in a lot of people's hearts because of that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we could also look at the numbers where, you know, people love to sing along with it. People really caught on to the sentiment, but it didn't sell records. So what does that tell you? That means it is like one of those live Paul songs where it's fun in the moment, but are you really going to take it home and listen to it? I mean, I did because I love Driving Rain and it was the last song on the album, but I didn't buy the single. Um, I, yeah, either one of them. And I'm not sure how much I would have listened to it or else I would have just forgotten it, you know, had it not been a driving rain. If it came on a playlist now, would you listen to it or would you skip it? I would probably listen to it once just for nostalgia's sake. And then I would probably skip it every other time. (laughs) I don't think we put it, Erica and I have a modern McCartney playlist because we've done a number of, you know, round tables at the Fest for Beatles fans talking about modern McCartney, which is anything you know, from 1989 onwards. And I'm trying to remember if we put freedom on there. I don't think we did. I don't think we did either. Interesting. Interesting to leave that off. I almost feel like we didn't even consider it. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember bringing it up. I do think though, I have a memory of like playing it in one of the hotel rooms when we were at Fest for Beatles fans and you being like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. That's my memory of it. So maybe then it was like, now nah, we're not putting that shit on there. Well, I think that we've done Freedom and this concert justice today, even though it didn't make it on that playlist. We've done our due diligence yes. with Paul and his 9-11 shenanigans. Well, we're going to wrap this up with, as we always do with our latest Beatles obsession um of the week or whenever so erica yeah i found something amazing this week so yoko ono is kicking off an art exhibition in vancouver on october 9th of course a special day for her and it's called the instructions of yoko ono and the art of john and yoko so it's a two-part exhibit and 
Uh, the first part I thought was really interesting because the first part is an exhibition of Yoko's so-called instructional works, which are the many pieces that she's done that invite the viewer to directly participate in the artistic process. So I mean, these are her signature things, like Mend Piece from 1966, where she asks visitors to fix broken china, or the very famous painting to hammer a nail, which asks viewers mm. to hammer nails into canvas, and of course is part of the legend of John and Yoko's first meeting the night before that exhibit opened. So, um, you know, she's always been, she's always done this, and she's bringing back another piece called Arising, and in this case, Yoko is asking for submissions. So according to the Vancouver Art Gallery, Yoko is inviting women of all ages from all over the world to send a testament of harm inflicted on them for simply being what they are, a woman. The artist asks that you write your testament in your own language, in your own words, and however openly you wish. You may sign your first name if you wish, but do not give your full name. Send a photograph only of your eyes. Oh, wow. We can all be part of this event if we want. You send your photo or your story to Yoko at vanartgallery.bc.ca. And uh, this exhibit's going to be running in Vancouver through May 1st. But it's, going, it's a traveling exhibit, so the chosen contributions will actually remain part of the exhibit as it goes to other cities. That's going to just be so powerful and so moving. And of course, for all of the, the Beatles fans out there, the second part of this exhibit is a presentation of John and Yoko's collaborations on art to promote peace. So uh, they're showing the war is over if you want a campaign and the bed is for peace. Um, so they're trying to explore these objects, not so much as a media event, but through the lens of being artwork. Um, and the exhibit is also going to feature stories of some of the people who participated with them in the art projects told in their own voices and words. So while we probably can't all make it to Vancouver for this exhibit, anybody who wants to could actually be part of it. I thought that was really interesting. That's so cool. She's always been so good at engaging, you know, people with her art, whether it's, you know, she obviously caught John's eye by doing that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, her exhibits in the early 60s where she invited people to cut a, an article of clothing off of her or, you know, when I was growing up, she had a tree at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you could go and write a wish on it and hang it on the branches or and I think even now that happens uh, in The Hague. Uh, mm -hmm. I did that while I was over there a couple of years ago. So it's, you know, it's classic Yoko to engage people on that level. I just, I love her art and her, you know, her vision so much. That's yeah. so exciting that she has a new exhibit. Yeah. And I love it that it's so of the time, you know, talking about the pain inflicted just by being born into this world as female. It's not just a retrospect of something that she had exhibited before. She's finding a way to make it current and make it living right now. I'm very excited to see how this turns out. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that everybody who wants to participate does send Yoko something to yeah. um, a, a picture of their eyes. I think that's really a fascinating way to, to show, to represent the pain that she's trying to, to you know, show in the exhibit. Yeah. So what are you obsessed with oh. this week? Well, I am afraid we're bookending this episode with some very sad news, um, but I wanted to forego my slot here uh, to actually dedicate this episode to somebody who was um, a textbook, like, you know, Long Island, Long Islander, you know, um, who really uh, was synonymous for me with 
going to contest on Long Island because she was always there with her husband. Um, and I'm talking about a woman who was named Ronnie Ashton. Um, her husband was Billy J. Kramer, who we all know as, uh, you know, a member of the Liverpool music scene managed by Brian sang you know, some Lennon McCartney hits who has lived on Long Island now for many years and was married to Ronnie for many years. And if anybody met Billy, they met Ronnie because she was always there in a very good way. Uh, she was always so sweet. I would see her at concerts. I met her at concerts on Long Island many years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, and would see her occasionally, you know, when I'd see Billy. And she would always remember things I told her, and I forgot I told her, but she'd always follow up with things, especially when we moved to LA. You know, but she was very gregarious. She was a powerhouse. You know, she was a small woman, but she was just like a force and she had a presence that was so admirable. Um, you know, she served in a managerial role in Billy's life uh, for a long time and really was an advocate for him in so many ways. She just was a really special person in the community. And she died very suddenly last week. And it's just so devastating. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, what better way to honor her than to dedicate, uh, a, you know, an episode all about New York, you know, yeah. to Ronnie. So I would like to do that. And um, Ronnie, we miss you. Well, you, it won't be the same without you. And, you know, everybody, please send good vibes to Billy. They were soulmates. They were just a great couple. So, you know, he's a lot of love right now. So please just send him love. Send him good vibes. If prayers are your thing, do that. But yeah, so this is this one's for Ronnie. Oh, that's so sweet. Definitely our yeah. hearts go out to Billy at this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, on that sad note, uh, let's wrap it up. So thank yeah. you all for listening to Because the Beatles. And next time we will go back to our Let It Be series. And we'll go track by track on the Giles Martin Let It Be remixes. And we'll talk a little bit about Phil Spector too, I think next week and his involvement in the album, the original uh, version that is but just so you guys have it on your calendar the let it be boxes remixes etc drop on october 15th which is coming right up guys can't mm -hmm. believe it yeah i know i know get a copy listen along with us we'll be going track by track and well you know when phil specter comes to the party it's always fun oh yeah somebody usually ends up dead yeah um Anyway, as always, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. And please give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.